Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Dupre and colleagues entitled, Opioid use increases the risk of delirium in critically ill adults independent of pain. I'm joined today by one of the senior authors of the study, Dr. John Devlin, and a thought leader in the field. Dr. Devlin is a professor of pharmacy at Northeastern University and an associate scientist in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Devlin also chaired the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 2018 Clinical Practice Guidelines for Pain, Agitation, Sedation, Delirium, Immobility, and Sleep Disruption. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here today. I thought we could start by discussing a little bit of background here. Intensivists are aware of the harms of excess analgesia and sedation, but a lot of them use the two interchangeably. And by way of background, I was wondering if you might comment about the various benefits of an analgesia-first sedation versus analgesia-based sedation with respect to delirium, coma, and other relevant patient outcomes. I think there's no question, Michael, that all ICU practitioners, clinicians should be uh, using an analgesia first approach for treating patients. So if patients are in pain, it's really important to recognize it and treat it, whether it's an opioid that's most appropriate or a non-opioid or even a non-pharmacologic intervention. You know, I think that's part of another discussion, but you know, the ABCDF bundle, there's a reason A is first, and that's to assess and treat pain. So patient comfort is, is critical in all of our patients. However, with analgesia, base sedation, this is where we're using the sedative functions of opioids to provide additive sedation to our patients. This is, we're usually using much higher doses, and we're trying to avoid you know, agents like benzodiazepines, propofol, and in some cases, even dexmedetomidine to try to provide not only pain control and comfort, but also the sedative properties in patients. This is where I think the evidence is a lot less firm um, in terms of the published evidence. Uh, there's been multiple randomized studies, all but one have been completed in Europe, and where they have a little bit more of a analgesia first, analgesia sedation culture, I think, than the United States. The studies are really heterogeneous. Many of them are small. None of them were, were double blind. Um, generally, these studies have found shorter duration mechanical ventilation in patients, pain control being better, delirium and coma, which of course are important considerations in any study in this area were mixed or either not evaluated. You know, certainly the uh, PAD-IS guidelines, we do make a conditional or weak recommendation regarding analgesia sedation, 
but that was before we had much of the evidence we have now, or maybe the benefits uh, may not exceed the potential risks. You had mentioned uh, some of the cultural differences between ICU sedation between Europe and North America. And I noticed that the study that you had done for the Blue Journal used patients from the Netherlands. What other differences in uh, culture or ICU sedation or analgesia exist? Or I guess perhaps, are there any unique aspects to the sedation culture at the study hospital? Yeah, this is a uh, study that was using data from uh, about eight years at University Medical Center in Utrecht. And I actually completed a sabbatical there about uh, seven years ago. ICU practice is quite heterogeneous across Europe, but at least in Holland and certainly at UMC Utrecht, they have one large mixed medical surgical ICU that has 48 beds. It's a thousand bed hospital. Um, But unlike the United States, they have large step-down units. So almost all of the patients that are admitted to their um, 48-bed ICU are mechanically ventilated, so which is quite different than the U.S. And they use a uh, multi-professional interdisciplinary team to treat patients, although um, there's no respiratory therapists and pharmacists are not really rounding. So it's very much an interprofessional physician and bedside nurse team that is um, managing patients. Um, Care is always one-to-one. The nurses actually really fulfill the role of the respiratory therapist, so they're experts on the ventilator. So those are probably the biggest difference. In terms of medication use, there's never been a large uptake of dexmedetomidine in Europe. Um, Certainly, it's greater now than it was five or 10 years ago. Benzodiazepines, similar to the U.S., were widely used even five or six years ago. Propofol has consistently been used, and there has been a culture of using um, more of an analgesic sedation approach. Uh, and let's let's talk about your study. What sort of patients were you studying? So we had a, um, it was all comers that were admitted to the ICU for longer than 24 hours over the um, eight-year study period. Um, the mix of patients were about one-third medical. acute surgery trauma, and 43% were elective surgery. So that's important to uh, remind people. So these are obviously complex cardiovascular and abdominal surgery patients. Uh, The Apache 2 score, sorry, the Apache 4 score was 54. So that works out to about an Apache 2 score, meaning Apache 2 score of around 18. And these patients stayed in the ICU for about two days. Their maximal ICU SOFA score was 7 And again, as I mentioned, 93% of these patients were mechanically ventilated. How did your group assess pain and delirium in these patients? What's unique about UMC Utrecht is they've always had a rigorous method to evaluate delirium that is combined, but also on top of the routine delirium assessment that would occur, you know, with a CAM ICU at most American hospitals. The delirium is assessed twice daily with a CAM ICU by the bedside nurse, but then a research nurse comes in and confirms these assessments. And also the research nurses also carefully look at the use of antipsychotics. They have very strict antipsychotic use criteria. So if a patient is administered, um, you know, haloperidol or quetiapine, or they use a lot of IV clonidine as well for um, delirium-related agitation, um, they would carefully examine that patient to see if, in fact, they were did have delirium that day. 
So the this has been published in the journal Critical Care, and it, it's it's really a pretty rigorous protocol because this could be a, a little bit of a downfall in retrospective studies where the rigor by which delirium assessment is not as strong. For pain assessment, they don't have a special protocol. So this is a potential limitation. Patients are well-trained, sorry, the nurses are well-trained to document um, pain using a visual analog scale if the patients are awake enough, and then they use a CPOT to evaluate pain in patients that are non-verbal or non-communicative. We, you know, we ran into one issue in our study and, you know, we, we have, um, we did address this in a subgroup analysis, but 22% of the patient days, there was no documented pain score. You know, you could make assumptions that maybe there wasn't pain that day, but you have to be careful about when you have data missing this like this. So, so that is one concern, but we had no missing data for uh, delirium. I just want to emphasize what an impressive undertaking this is when you talk about having a research nurse doing some of these assessments. I mean, this is 4,000 patients over years. I mean, what uh, I see, 26,000 ICU days. I mean, I, I think the quality of data from that is um, impressive. So, I mean, that, that's commendable. I was wondering if we could get to kind of the meat of your uh, study here and just, could you just tell us how you actually determined what the relationship was between opioids and delirium? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, the pharmacoepidemiology of delirium in the ICU is, is a little bit tricky. And you really need to think about daily changes in delirium risk factors, opioid exposure, and also what the patient's neurologic status is each ICU day because it changes. So, for example, a patient might have might be awake without delirium. They might then be deeply sedated, say, with a benzodiazepine. And then on day, on day two, be in coma. So we don't know if they have delirium. They're in dependent states. And then on day three, maybe they are more wakeful off the benzodiazepine and they have delirium. You know, what if that patient on day two also um, you know, had hypotension, was found of sepsis, was started on a presser, went into renal failure, and had worsening oxygenation, their level of organ dysfunction and severity of illness also increased. And we know that there's a lot of things that drive delirium in the ICU and not just medications. And worsening severity of illness is a really big factor in whether a patient's going to transition to delirium in the ICU. So what we did is, long story short, is we looked at, we didn't look at the, uh, the analysis per patient. We looked at it per ICU patient day. So basically we took all of these 4,000 patients and looked at each of their ICU days. And we're not commenting on the risk per patient. We're looking on the risk of the patient transitioning from the ICU days where they had no delirium and didn't have coma, obviously, to the days they where they transitioned to delirium the next day. So that's a subgroup of the total ICU days, 4,000 patients spent in the study. This is basically what we know as a Markov model. And it, it's a Markov models are similar. Probably most of your listeners are probably used to them for pharmacoeconomic analysis, where we're looking at predicting the daily risk of transitioning from either getting therapy A or therapy B or having a side effect. I mean, you could do Markov modeling for anything. And what we're looking at is what's the daily risk of transitioning from a wakefulness without delirium to delirium based on a number of baseline factors and a lot of daily variables, including daily severity of illness, benzodiazepine use, pain scores, as well as opioid exposure. 
And so we're basically looking at the odds ratio of transitioning from one state to the next. And this is, it, it's complex, these models, but they actually are really useful to inform bedside clinicians because if, you know, we were working together in an ICU and we wanted to initiate opioid therapy or we wanted to increase the dose of opioid therapy, maybe moving more to an analgesic sedation uh, regimen, based on the results of our study, we could, at the bedside, know what the odds is if we give this many milligrams of morphine equivalents to our patient, what's the odds of the patient having transitioning to delirium tomorrow? And these odds ratios are additive. So they're, they're very, very useful for clinical decision-making. I was impressed with how strong of a signal uh, it was with just a couple of extra milligrams of morphine equivalent, a noticeable increase in that uh, daily risk. One of the things that I really liked about your analytic approach is that you did a lot of sensitivity analyses. And I'm, I was wondering if you could go into that because when you first bring up this statement about this relationship, a lot of people might ask, well, how do you account for patients who might have greater risk for pain, like a surgical patient? Maybe that person's more predisposed to delirium. Yeah, we did a number of sensitivity analysis, I think about um, eight or nine of them. And for example, the one question you raise is we looked at subgroup analysis. So we basically did the same analysis, the same Markov multinomial risk factor analysis between medical patients and surgical patients. And, and obviously these are all hypothesis driven, as you suggest. And we actually found that there was very little difference in the risk for transitioning to delirium the next day whether a patient was a medical patient or a surgical patient, realizing probably, you know, the reason for opioid administration might be different in those patients. And we remember we were controlling for the presence of sort of major pain, which was a CPOT uh, above uh, six or a VAS above, uh, sorry, CPOT above four or VAS above six. Um, some of the other interesting things we thought are older adults more predisposed. So we did a Another subgroup analysis between under 65 and over 65 found no difference. We thought there might be temporal changes. You know, when you have a data set of eight years, is there things that were happening, you know, say in 2003 that were practices changed um, and did, did we see a difference? So we didn't, we divided it into three epochs and did not find a difference over those three epochs. The other um, question we had too is, you know, the effect of opioids on the on the brain, CNS penetration, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, it's obviously kind of a complex milieu, but we hypothesize do synthetic opioids like fentanyl or remifentanyl have a different effect on delirium occurrence than natural opioids like morphine or hydromorphone. And we actually did not find a big difference there either. So these are all very hypothesis generating. We don't have a lot of answers, but at least there's not a strong reason to suddenly be only using morphine or only using fentanyl in these patients, or if you're caring for a surgical patient versus a medical patient, still not being concerned about potential risk for transitioning to delirium if you're giving an opioid. One of the things that I thought was really remarkable was that you guys did an exploratory analysis that was uh, fairly interesting. And you found in that exploratory analysis an inverse relationship between pain and delirium after controlling for opioid exposure, which I thought was uh, not what I would have expected. Can you offer any sort of speculation as to why that might be? It's a really interesting question. And I'm glad you're emphasizing exploratory. Um, you know, over the years, there's been various kind of smaller reports suggesting that there may be a connection or association between pain and delirium. 
particularly in older geriatric patients undergoing major surgery, but not admitted to the ICU. In the ICU, this is much, much more mixed. And I think the most conservative way to suggest is that there's not, is not saying there's not a relationship or that there's a negative relationship, but there's probably maybe not a relationship, but it needs a lot more exploration. So we're actively looking at the data set. You know, as I mentioned, we have we had 22% pain score missing this. And, you know, this is a really complex relationship because pain assessment is different in patients that are more sedated and maybe have delirium than patients who are more wakeful and don't have delirium. For example, you can't really compare a visual analog scale score, which would be given to a, administered to a patient who's more awake and definitely not having delirium versus say the CPOT where patients are much more sedated. It's hard to make those equivalent. We only looked at, you know, um, sort of major pain and, uh, or severe pain, sorry. And we didn't look at um, you know, moderate pain or changes in pain. We actually scored the patient's pain scores just once daily for the presence of pain. And this is a really dynamic phase, right? In terms of whether when the opioid's given relative to when pain's done, pain scores change relative to when the delirium might be evaluated in the CAMICU positive or negative. So this needs a really a lot more research. We're using this database to try to answer some of these questions, but it's um, some of these questions are going to be very, very hard to answer actually using a retrospective database. It's going to take some really careful bedside evaluation, um, looking at these complex relationships and dynamics. One of the other interesting aspects of your study I noted was that the depth of sedation and propofol weren't really included in the models. And what I was curious about is that those parameters could be associated with delirium, you know, for example, increased depth of sedation or increased uh, propofol dose, and that can scale up with opioid dose. Uh, so someone who's getting more opioid might be getting more propofol. Uh, additionally, people who are sicker, more critically ill might have greater risk for delirium. They may also have greater need for opioids. So how do you try to address those possible confounders by indication? Yeah, that's like always one of the biggest issues with any retrospective database analysis, because you're not really sure what came first and what is the true dynamic of the patient. And then why, you know, this related to all this, what was the clinical decision-making of the ICU team in terms of the therapies they were uh, delivering. But we did try through um, our multivariate analysis to really look at this. And so first of all, we did, you know, we did include coma as an independent state. So we were only looking at the transition. So we did control for coma. And, you know, there, Michael, there's not really a lot of data suggesting deeper sedation. So like a RASA minus two, minus three actually is, a, is independently associated with delirium. There's been some pretty good studies and this hasn't really borne out. Now, it doesn't mean we should be giving, you know, sedation, whatever age that we choose to a RASA minus three if patients don't need it. You know, I'm a just like the, you know, the ADF bundle, lots of data suggesting, you know, we should really be maintaining patients at a lighter level of station, you know, RAS and minus one, maybe minus two. So we did control for that. We also obviously controlled for severity of illness. Propofol itself is really mixed in terms of whether it does cause delirium. And I think really the jury's out in terms of whether propofol is an independent risk factor for delirium. I think some of the best data where we've kept patients wakeful 
use the ADEF bundle comes from the recent um, MENS2 study that was published earlier this year in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. I served as a co-investigator on, and we found virtually no difference in delirium occurrence, days with delirium or coma, between the dexmedetomidine-treated patients and the propofol-treated patients. Again, this was a large randomized study in patients who had sepsis, primarily medical. Um, so I think we chose not to control for propofol use in our model. Of course, we did control for midazolam. Of course, future analysis could look at these factors, uh, but we didn't feel it was necessary in our study. I think that's a very balanced response about uh, you know, how to try to interpret data from retrospective studies. My next question comes from one of your former students, Gabe Fontaine, who's now one of my colleagues. Sedation involves managing competing risks, and we often try to turn to alternative agents like rotiapine or melatonin to minimize sedation, but that can lead to other challenges. And you know, by um, way of example, you, know, you were the lead author of that landmark RCT on the use of quetiapine in the ICU that was published in 2010. And since that publication, we've now seen a rise in the use of quetiapine in the ICU, which has been associated with reduced uh, use of other medications. But one of the minor harms is that it's frequently inappropriately continued when patients go to the floor. And so how should we design studies to try to better reflect evolving practices and balance those competing risks? Yeah, uh, thanks, Michael. Thanks, first of all, for saying it was a landmark study. To me, um, my quetiapine study was a small pilot study that was, you know, I was trying to learn how to maybe potentially design a much larger randomized study. There's so many limitations with that quetiapine study in terms of how we manage patients. And many of the patients actually got as needed haloperidol. Back in 2007, our IRB actually felt haloperidol was standard for treating delirium, which we certainly know from the MindUSA study, it's not anymore, but it was informative. But I actually spent the last 10 years, I've pretty much spent any talk I can give to people is quetiapine should be used rarely, if any, for treating delirium, unless patients have really severe symptoms in terms of, you know, agitation, not related to pain, hallucinations. We often use it at night, sometimes for sleep, where patients have circadian dysrhythmicity and they're uh, agitated awake and really difficult to manage at night. So I think there's a role for, you know, agents like quetiapine there. I think there is probably, you know, we have a large population of patients where we probably need to be treating agitation in much more of a PRN basis. So I think there's, you know, roles for the antipsychotics in some of these patients. I think to really evaluate the role, we need to use more adaptive uh, trial design and maybe even starting with higher doses when they're agitated and quickly titrating down. And of course, making sure we do good medication reconciliation when patients leave the ICU to make sure we're stopping all of these agents like antipsychotics, uh, benzodiazepines, um, opioids, and even things like stress ulcer prophylaxis. I think the key thing with sedation in the ICU and it's sort of the C, the choice of agents that's part of the A to F bundle is having a daily discussion about what the sedation and pain goals are and making sure people are really thinking about what the daily plan are. I can't think of any patients, even in COVID, that I helped manage here at the Brigham where you, know, you could just establish a pain and analgesia regimen on day one and hope that it's gonna continue every day. I think if things are kind of on autopilot like that, I really think we're not managing the patients appropriately this day and age. You know, going along with that, I guess, uh, you know, for kind of our last question, for our clinicians out there, what would you say is the biggest misconception regarding sedation and analgesia that should be corrected? 
you know, it's interesting in our PAD-IS guidelines, we had a lot of patient um, ICU survivors involved. So they participated in, you know, we had monthly sedation calls. And this can be hard to do, but so you can't always ask the patient the sedation they want, but patients have varying degrees by which they want to be sedated. Some patients really want to be deeply sedated and just forget everything. But then there's many, many patients that actually want to be more awake. Doesn't mean that they're without anything, but they want to be more awake, even if they're intubated. And I think it's really important to think this more in a patient-centric focus. Obviously, we still have to manage the ventilator. We have to manage patient safety and we have to look at the goals of therapy. But I think for too long, the ICU team, which obviously includes the bedside nurse, has decided on what the goals are that are convenient to the team and not necessarily as patient-centric as they could be. And there's a huge interest and obviously lots of research on daily mobilization, evaluating and trying to improve sleep reduce sleep disruption, improve circadian dysrhythmicity, and that wakefulness to be able to do mobility, to try to get the circadian rhythm back to normal, really requires patients to be far more wakeful during the day and maybe chill them out a little bit more at night. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking, obviously, the severe ARDS patient that is severely hypoxic and etc. But I'm talking about the average ICU patient, where I think we can really come back lighter, use more PRNs and make it much more patient centric because we're not, to me, sedation has always been kind of a necessary evil in the ICU. There's just, there's virtually no redeeming features other than making sure our patients are safe, really thinking about anxiety too. And I think that's the way we need to get patients through the ICU. I think that's great. That's like a complete paradigm shift for a lot of ICU cultures here. You know, I just want to say thank you so much. This has really been uh, enlightening for me. Uh, I think I'm going to be changing my practice just from some of the uh, conversation that we've had here. I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Devlin, for a absolutely wonderful discussion of both his study and ICU delirium in general. Uh, thank you, Dr. Devlin. Thanks very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. <laughs>